This is Andrew Bergman, and you're listening to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. Godfrey's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre and our engineer Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is an old friend who's returning to the podcast once again to educate, entertain us, and enlighten us about everything from Hal Roach's collaborations with Mussolini to Fred Allen's dislike of Eddie Cantor to Ted Healy's outright hatred of Georgie Jessel and much, much more. He's a former comedian, a historian, a producer, and TV host, an occasional podcaster, and the author of a best-selling book that we consider the Bible here at the show, the comedians, drunks, thieves, scoundrels, and the history of American comedy, which received rave reviews and was selected as the book of the year by the National Post and LA Times. He was a consulting producer on CNN's History of Comedy, whenever that show was on the air. <laughs> it, was about, it was on about 600 times. Yeah, 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 600. Well, but it would be on once, and 10 months later it would be on again. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And then it would come back on another channel at a totally <laughs> yes. different time. It was hard to keep up with. Uh, the Spike Jones produced Funny How and the host of his very own podcast, Classic Showbiz with Cliff. Nasal nose. <laughs> He's going to do that again, Cliff. <laughs> Can't wait. What was that, Cliff? Nasal nose? Nasal nose. <laughs> oh, Drew will be so happy. <laughs> He's interviewed everyone from Mel Brooks to Steve Martin, as well as our former podcast guest, George Slaughter, Buck Henry, Bernie Capel, Ronnie Shell. And Dick Cavett, just to name a few. Welcome back to the podcast, the man that Vice Magazine once called the Human Encyclopedia of Comedy, and a man who claims that former Wizard of Oz munchkin Jerry Marin was once hired to pee on the legendary Jimmy Stewart. Please welcome to the show the incomparable Colin Noseldorf. <laughs> you don't know what an honor that is, Cliff. I do know what an honor that is. Thank you so much. To have your name mangled. Cliff, the great Cliff Nesteroff is here, is back with us. How the hell are you and where are you? Tell our listeners. 
I am in uh, Nelson, British Columbia, tagging up, as it were, because I'm not American. I have to renew all my immigration papers. So I have to be outside of the country for a few months till that's done. And in the meantime, I'm in my hometown of Nelson, British Columbia, famous for being the shooting location for the Steve Martin movie, Roxanne. So Ah. when I was five years old, the first introduction to show business I ever had was watching Steve Martin walk around my hometown with a prosthetic nose. I watched on the sidelines that entire movie being made. I love that. As a child. I yeah. just I just saw Steve Martin perform last night. He played the banjo. He played a sad banjo at uh, Ricky Jay's memorial service here in wow. New York. Yeah, it was very, very, very touching. Um, before we jump into anything else, I think Gilbert wants to know the Jerry Marin peeing on Jimmy Stewart uh, yeah. story. So, so Jimmy Stewart at one point said, oh, could, could, you, could you get a famous uh, major to pee on me, please? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was for uh, Jimmy Stewart's birthday party, and some of his friends hired, I believe, Jerry Marin and Billy Curtis, the two little people of that era who were very... <laughs> Uh, prominent. I think this was in the 1950s. And they said that Billy Barty was on location somewhere. It may have been Billy Barty. I'm going off the top of my head. I can't remember if it was Billy Curtis or Billy Barty, but regardless, Jerry Marin and another one of those fellas uh, were hired to jump out of a birthday cake like a dancing girl, but in a diaper and then drop the diaper and start urinating on Jimmy Stewart <laughs> at his birthday party. <laughs> Now, did Jimmy Stewart request this? Was he into getting peed on? Uh, I don't know if he was into it, but it was a surprise uh, birthday present for him. And that's according to Jerry Marin's autobiography. So straight from the source. (laughs) You got that, Gil? That's your your opening show gift. Yeah. He was in a diaper and paid to pee on Jimmy Stewart. Ah, So, but we don't know if Jimmy Stewart (laughs) wanted it or not. I, he may have developed a taste for it later on after that. I, don't know. I was on the phone with Cliff last night, and I told him about, uh, he did not know about, surprisingly, because I thought he knew absolutely everything, once in a while we stump him, about uh, the Valanche story about Joan Crawford peeing on David Niven, which he was unfamiliar with. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'd never heard that before. Yeah. Add, add that to the collection. Um. Now, oh, yeah. Go ahead, Gil. No, no, no. I I was... <laughs> I'm just stuck on Jimmy Stewart getting <laughs> peed on by famous midgets. This is well, do you guys have a do you guys have a list of all the people that who are into that? I mean, no, not Dan handy. Thomas, <laughs> not not I, our. I, we moved offices, so our files. <laughs> it's in the it's in the old file. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god tell us what you've been up to since we last saw you you took oh you god. tried your hand think- at a podcast that mark Marin produced oh you, yeah, yeah. All, you, i, I don't were- know how you guys crank out these podcasts uh two a week i could never do it i did four four episodes of my podcast over the course of two years and that's been it but it's available there on the same uh stitcher uh, yeah, app, the Stitcher but platform. it was called Classic Showbiz, and uh, it was a lot of work, man. It was like top-heavy production values, scripted, just stories from the history of comedy and the history of show business. One about the mafia, one about um, a gay comedian in the '30s who was opening openly gay a guy named Ray Bourbon, um, and an episode about comedians and LSD about George Carlin and Richard Pryor, how they did psychedelics in the '60s and that changed things. But one thing about that show that might be of interest to your listeners is that I use the actual audio from the interviews I did in research for the comedian. So when I'm talking about comedians in the mafia, I throw it to Jack Carter and then Jack Carter 
tells a story on the podcast. So if you want to hear the voices of some of these people, yes, uh, absolutely, it's on classic showbiz. Yeah. Now, now that brings us to a story that I think everyone wants to hear again, and that's that Marlon Brando fucked Richard Pryor in the ass. <laughs> Do you know anything about this, Cliff? Well, I just found out about it at the same time everybody found about it. You know, it's a, the <laughs> shot heard Jones. around the world. We all heard it at the same time. Um, I know Rain Pryor was really mad about that story. Yeah, she but, was. Uh, uh, you know, Marlon Brando, definitely uh, uh, bisexual by most accounts. But, sure. I, I, you know, the Pryor story was, was new to me. Um, that may have been why Richard Pryor was so enraged. Do you know the story about what happened at the Hollywood Bowl in the late 70s with Richard Pryor? He was no. booked that on a show that was I, wait, like refreshes. It was like a uh, gay rights activist type of uh, event in the late seventies, and they booked all these sort of uh, allies of the gay and lesbian community, like Tab Hunter and Lily Tomlin, and they booked Richard Pryor. And Richard Pryor went on this crazy rant for like ten minutes, yelling the word "fag" and going off. And it was front page news the next day. Um, but maybe he had just had that encounter with Marlon Brando and kind of felt like ashamed about it. I don't know. But it was a big, big story where there was like a campaign against Richard Pryor yes, there. I think it's 76 or 77. Me. Yeah. 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 Well, at some point in the show, and by the way, Chris, uh, Cliff has brought us a fresh list of scandals, Gilbert. You're going to be very happy. Oh, excellent. <laughs> he was like, goal. it was like Christmas morning. Ooh. He emailed me a list. I can't wait. Well, yeah, that's what I've mostly been up to since the last time I saw you guys is sort of researching that kind of stuff. And, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and one of the things that I discovered, maybe you had heard about this before. Um, do you know about the incident between Stu Gilliam, the Axe, and uh, Alan Hale Jr.? You know that story? We'd heard this story. Well, yeah, no. I, I, I think Gino know, knows this story because he knew Alan Hale Jr. Yeah, but, but, but it's, who's, it's, who's the Axe? Huh? Who, the Axe? Stu Gilliam. The, the, the black comic, yeah, an axe. You mean a physical axe? Oh, an axe! Oh, I thought that was some wrestler or something. <laughs> the axe! Oh my god! So Stu Gilliam and Alan Hale Jr. are best known as Skipper on Gilligan's yes. yeah, Island. Yeah, for the for the uninitiated, tell the story. Well, Alan Hale Jr., like a lot of celebrities in the late 60s and early 70s, he opened his own restaurant. It was on La Cienega Boulevard in uh, Beverly Hills. I remember. Beverly Hills in Hollywood. Right. And so it was like a family restaurant with a drawing of him on the sign. And you get matches that had a picture of Alan Hale Jr. on it, you know. And at the time, Stu Gilliam, who had uh, started his career as one of the few, uh, maybe maybe one of the many, uh, black ventriloquists on the Chitlin circuit, along with Willie Tyler and Lester, uh -huh. along with a guy named Richard and Willie, and along with a guy named Aaron Williams, who appeared on an episode of the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. Stu Gilliam was the fourth of the African-American ventriloquists in that era before he went into straight stand-up. And, you know, he appeared on many game shows and did voices of cartoons, late 60s, early 70s. His career was on, on the way up. He had done the Hollywood Palace as a stand-up. Larry Gelbart hired him to star in a new series that was sort of the unofficial all-black version of MASH. Oh, Rollout. It was called, yeah, it was called Rollout. Yes. It starred Stu Gilliam. <laughs> <laughs> At that time, there were all these sort of um, black versions of white shows. It was sort of a trend. There was a black version of The Odd Couple that was live on the stage. There was a oh, black yeah. version of Barefoot in the Park. And and then there was the, uh, yeah, there was... Uh, they did a TV version of Damon The Odd Couple. Wilson and, and Ron Silver. Ron Glass. Ron Glass, From I Barney mean. Miller. Ron, yeah. 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 
Right. So this was part of that trend. Rollout took place during World War II instead of the Korean War, but it was basically an all-black uh, version of MASH, also created by Larry Gelbard, featured people like Garrett Morris in the cast before Saturday Night Live. So Stu Gilliam starred in this show. He was on the front page of a lot of like Parade Magazine and regional TV guides. It was a big deal and got got decent ratings, ran about four episodes. And then Stu Gilliam went out for dinner at Alan Hale's Lobster Barrel. <laughs> oh, and when geez. he showed up. <laughs> I love this already. <laughs> when he showed up, the maitre d' said, I'm sorry, sir, there's no uh, seats available. And Stu Gilliam said something to the effect of, don't you know who I am? I'm the star of uh, the hit sitcom Rollout. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and the maitre d' said, so, I'm sorry, sir, we can't seat you. There's no seats here at Alan Hale's Lobster Barrel. <laughs> So uh, Alan Hale's lobster barrel was doing well. Yeah. So <laughs> Stu Gilliam went back to his car, got a axe oh. out of the trunk of the car, and came back and attacked the maitre d with an axe. And <laughs> <laughs> it became this huge tabloid uh, story. It was in all the press. It was in Jet Magazine. And just like today, when something goes crazy on Twitter and everybody's like calling for the person to be fired, same thing. They ended up um, deciding that Stu Gilliam was too much of a liability. So they canceled rollout because of this incident. Unbelievable. They the show and then canceled the Did show. Did you know this story, Gilbert? No. It's great. It's that's gold. That's great. <laughs> it's gold. And did, yeah. did, did Alan Hale Jr. ever have any say in the matter? Did he press charges? I don't know that there's no follow up in the in the news reports that I've read about that. I'm assuming they didn't press charges, otherwise it would have been in the news. But Alan Hale Jr. They didn't mention it, but he may have been there because supposedly he would hang out at his own restaurant all the time and answer the phone. Uh, Hello, little buddy. That was how he would answer the phone. <laughs> I have I have friends from Los Angeles when they were kids they would always crank call Alan Hale's Lobster Barrel because they wanted to hear him <laughs> talk to Alan Hale they always answered the phone so. yeah. I love that we, we'll, we'll get into the stories there are so many of them but I want you to just I don't know that people know this about you too that you started as a comic and I was asking yeah. you what your act was like and I was intrigued yeah yeah well I had a couple acts I did an act as myself in my own voice, like a normal comedian. And that act was always unpopular, never went well. <laughs> okay. And then I had another act that I did in character that destroyed. It actually was very popular in uh, in Vancouver where I was doing it. And the character's name was Shecky Gray. Uh, at the time, I was 20 years old. He was an old-fashioned, old-timey, unfunny, narcissistic comedian. And ironically, at the time, I had no context for people like Shecky Green or Jack Carter, yet I channeled them. I emulated That's, them on stage as these sort of indignant characters. And I wrote uh, street jokes, basically, that were original street jokes but that could have sounded like they were from the 1950s. So I'd go up on stage in character. And actually, you know, whenever I talk about Jack Carter on your show, I do that voice. Yeah. It doesn't really sound like Jack Carter. It's okay. But it's really loud and he's, fuck you, you not, you know, just screaming and ranting. <laughs> that was basically <laughs> the same voice I was doing in my stand-up act all those years before as Shecky Gray. And I would go up on stage and do jokes like, uh, uh, well, I'd say, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Shecky Gray. I'm an internationally renowned and professional, professional comedian. I recently threw a party for all my impotent friends. 
but nobody came. Oh, <laughs> now we're cooking with gasoline. And I had this old battered symbol, and I would smash this symbol. Shaky and gray. after every yeah, and after every joke, I would yell. Now we're working. Now we're, you know, every time after every joke, I would say, now we're doing something. And I stole some jokes from this guy named Alan Gale, who was a Miami Beach stand-up comic from the early 50s. He put out a comedy record pressed by the mafia on Roulette Records Roulette. called On oh, Morris, Morris Levy. Ah. And, and the name of the record was uh, Live at Jack Silverman's International Celebrity Club. And I was listening to that record around that same time and was just that's when I kind of became fascinated by this world, this Miami Beach yeah. mobster comedy world. And I took a joke off of that record and did it in character on stage as Shecky Gray. And the joke was uh, I was walking down the street the other day, saw a lady, said, Hey, miss, your pants are coming down. She looked, said, No, they're not. I said, Sorry, I've made up my mind. Oh, <laughs> now we're working. <laughs> Gilbert's taking so notes, the, by the oh, way. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm opening with that tonight. Yeah. So then after what all of these sort of street jokes, I would yell, now we're doing this, and they would get increasingly absurd, and that actually became the crux of the act. So I'd do a joke, now we're working, do a joke, now we're cooking with gasoline, do a joke, and then, now we're poking holes in the Pope's condoms, <laughs> now we're blowing Bob Dylan in the wind. Now we're wishing that Keanu was the Reeves in a wheelchair. Because at the time, Christopher Reeves was. Oh, <laughs> it's like, a, Mar so it's like was, a dark Martin Short character. Yeah, it was yeah. very broad and very shticky. And sometimes very broad and very shticky acts become very popular. And it did. It really became a phenomenon there. But it also it kind of left me with this weird feeling because it wasn't really the kind of stand-up I wanted to do. You know, right. I like stand-ups to the talk right. rather than, than affect crazy characters. But it became very popular. And I learned, and I don't know if you ever had this experience in your career, Gilbert, but I learned that because my act was very loud and sort of combative, it kind of gave license to the audience to be loud and combative in return. So people oh, would scream yeah. at me That's happened while to you, I was Gilbert? screaming yeah. at them. Yeah. So... Eventually, that became the act. I would um, respond to hecklers in character and became sort of this insult comic, the same way our friend Jeff Ross does speed roasting. People, and this was not arranged, people would line up at the front of the stage single file to take turns yelling at me, and then I would yell back <laughs> at them with an insult, and it would get a big, would get a big laugh. So I did that, Shecky Gray, for um, several years in Vancouver until uh, my throat couldn't take it anymore. It's interesting too. Then you're you're a kid. I mean, you're in your twenties at this point. I'm assuming that you're doing this, and already yeah, was, your your love your of these of these kind of old school comics, these broken down loser comics, is already informing what you do on stage. Yeah, because yeah, I was collecting records at the time, so I'd go to the record store and find all these records by Rusty Warren, Woody Woodbury, Bell Barth, Woody and Woodbury. like I mentioned, that guy Alan Gale, and all of them uh, tended to do the same jokes. And they all tended to be recorded in some weird nightclub you'd never heard of. And I just became fascinated by that. You know, Woody Woodbury was on a record label called Stereo Oddities. And the first time I ever did any show business, it was community radio when I was 16 years old. And the name of my show was Stereo Oddities. And I would play weird records, sort of like Dr. Demento and stuff like that. So the vinyl 
uh, world was sort of the big influence because those people didn't do TV. You didn't see Woody Woodbury on TV much. He had a talk show, but you really didn't see him growing up. No. Rusty Warren, you never saw on TV. Bell Barth that you never saw on TV. Well, they had dirty so acts, like, didn't they? Rusty Warren and Bell Barth? Well, yeah, borderline dirty. But for that reason, I would find these records and go, well, who the fuck are they? Like, why are these records in every thrift store yet? I've never heard of them right. or seen them on TV. So that was the sort of inherent historian was uh, born there. Gil, did you know these comics? These, I mean, you you, you listen to comedy Woody, albums. Woody Woodbury, I was familiar with. Yeah, still with us, Woody. I think he just had a birthday this he week. He did? He's in his 90s. Yeah, I think he turned 92 yeah, or 93 was, or something. He yeah. was in some weird movie with Ellen Burstyn. Wow. It's like where he was appeared as Woody Woodbury. But were you a student of these? Uh, uh, you, you collected comedy albums. You listened to comedy albums. I, I know you listen to Alan Sherman and, yeah, and all yeah. of that stuff. But did you know these these kind of no, B and C no. level The other comics? ones I didn't know. Rusty Warren. Bell Barth was famous. Tell, tell, us, no. another, tell us another frightening showbiz story. <laughs> Let me pick sure. one, Let me pick on one off the list, list. There, Frank. What's yeah, that? Pick one off the list. I'll pick Go one. Ahead and pick one off I'll the list. I'll pick one off the list. Uh, I kind of like. Uh, I kind of like the Tennessee Ernie Ford story. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah, T- Tennessee. <laughs> Tennessee Ernie Ford uh, <laughs> sent and had delivered a cease and de- desist letter to the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> because- <laughs> he loves this stuff. This is catnip for him. <laughs> The, the Ku Klux Klan was using Tennessee Ernie Ford's recording of the old rugged cross during their cross burnings. And God. <laughs> you like that, Gil? <laughs> so, so, did the Klan go to court down that time? <laughs> so, I guess they respected Tennessee Ernie Ford because <laughs> they did cease and desist uh, using that during cross burnings, reportedly. But yeah, so that's all there is to the story. But still, <laughs> he loves this stuff. Yes. <laughs> yeah, pick another one. Here's another one that's less funny, uh, I'm sure, but <laughs> it, it, it pertains to somebody we talk about a lot on this show, which is Timmy Rogers. Oh, the great oh, comedian. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, Timmy Rogers is. Uh, it's kind of fascinating because people have not explored his career at all. They know, oh, yeah, if they remember him at all. We just talked to Larry uh, Charles does, about him. Larry Charles knew who he was. I, I heard that. I heard that. Students uh, of comedy know Rogers him. Rogers name dropper. Yeah. yeah. Well, he started in the jazz world. In 1943, he was a member of the Count Basie Orchestra, and he was sort of the comedian with the orchestra, but his knack for writing comedy material came from lyrics. He was a lyricist. He would write sort of funny novelty songs for jazz musicians, and then in 1946, post-war, he kind of went straight and started just doing stand-up. He would still close with a song the way like Jack Carter and those guys would usually close yeah, with a song. Yeah, he used the to do, period. everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. That's right. <laughs> and he had another He had another uh, song about inflation, about the high prices these days, <laughs> which, he did, which he did for like 40 years. And bless always, bless his heart. Ah, ah. But in 1946, he was sort of the first of the modern black comedians to just go on stage as himself in a tuxedo, as opposed to Pigmeat Markham doing a character with a floppy hat and props, or Moms Mabley doing a character. And he and Pigmeat Markham had a big feud. <laughs> Timmy Rogers and Pigmeat Markham did not get along, and the reason was because Pigmeat Markham was old-fashioned, <clears throat> and despite the fact that he was black, uh, Pigmeat Markham would use blackface. He would blacken himself up further and do the white around the mouth. 
And Timmy Rogers would say, man, we're past that. You don't need to do that anymore. And so they would bicker back and forth. And then Timmy Rogers recorded a number of um, rhythm and blues records and things like this throughout the 50s. And then in 1958, this is the story, he was booked in London at the Palladium on a show with Liberace and Dick Sean. And Liberace was the headliner. Timmy Rogers was doing like a half an hour and Dick Sean was brand new. He was doing like 10 minutes. But Dick Sean was upstaging everybody. He was so dominant and mm-hmm. so good and getting such an ovation. They started whittling down Timmy Rogers' time and bolstering Dick Sean's time. And so Timmy Rogers got pissed off. He quit while he was in London. And his agent, since he was over there anyways, booked him on a series of tours on military bases. He started performing on American military installations all throughout Europe. He was in Germany in 1958 doing the third show in one night on a Saturday night, and he showed up for a 12.15 a.m. show at 12.03 a.m., and the sergeant there was drunk, he was white, and he was outraged. He thought Timmy Rogers was late, and he said, where the fuck you been? Where's the fucking MC?" And Timmy Rogers said, whoa, whoa, man, what's the problem? And the guy said, this white sergeant said, don't call me man, boy. And punched him in the face, knocked him up against a shuffleboard table, punched him again, threw him to the ground while yelling the N-word, kicked him in the ribs, broke three of his ribs, and fractured his face. And Timmy Rogers, at that point, was also dancing in his act, and he was unable to dance after that. And so there was a court-martial. They put this sergeant on trial. Um, People expected him to get five years for this unprovoked racist assault on Timmy Rogers. And they had this court-martial, and he was acquitted of all charges, despite the fact there were all these witnesses. Unreal. And Timmy Rogers was outraged. He said, this is Mississippi justice. This is Senator Bilbo-style justice in the American military. And the reason I bring it up is because a few weeks ago, there was that horrible story about the actor from Empire, and it reminded me of uh, Timmy Rogers being attacked by this sort of white supremacist and then— it almost ruined his career in the sense that he couldn't move for several months. He was Horrible. just um, stuck in a hospital bed. But yeah. Boy, that started off great and then <laughs> I told you, I said it wasn't exactly funny, <laughs> but it pertains. It pertains to somebody we maybe maybe this one's a little funnier. Okay, <laughs> yeah, that got real dark real fast. This, but this is from your book, and I'm going to just repeatedly plug the book through the show. The wonderful book, the comedians. If our listeners do not have this book. Please do not waste a moment. Go out and get it because this is the the perfect book for people who listen to this show. But what about Ted Healy trying to kill Jessel? <laughs> as long as we're on a violence theme. Now, now for anyone out there, Ted Healy, it used to be Ted Healy and his three stooges right before yeah. they split up. Well, I think um, the story was in a Walter Winchell column or, yeah, I think it was Winchell. He reported that George Jessel had invented a new drink called the Bloody Mary. This was in the late 1920s. They credited, they credited George Schlatter, or sorry, with George Jessel with the invention of the Bloody Mary. And in, in the article, Winchell mentioned that he had been with this woman named Mary, and that he named it after her. And she was Ted Healy's girlfriend or wife. And so Ted Healy did not know that George Jessel had been hanging around with his woman until he read this article about how he had named the Bloody Mary after her. So they were backstage, I think, in Chicago at some vaudeville house, and Ted Healy um, shot a gun not to shoot him, but to basically make him go deaf right by Jessel's ear, uh, fired a loaded pistol, 
and Jessel couldn't hear for a week. He couldn't go on stage because his ears were were ringing. I believe that's the story. Yeah. Uh, oh my God. So, so Jessel must have had a few moments of Schadenfreude when when uh, when Ted Healy came to a bad end. Yeah, and then there was that other sort of famous anecdote because George Jessel would not have survived the Me Too era. You know, he was known for having sex <laughs> right. with yes. 14-year-old girls on a regular basis. And uh, there's a famous story on the Red Skelton show. They had an animal act and it urinated all over the stage. And Red Skelton came back out and said, oh, it looks like uh, Jessel's girlfriend has been here. Meaning that, you know, she was a toddler who had read herself. Oh, my God. So... <laughs> Heartwarming. So what? He thought Jessel had fucked his girlfriend? Yeah. Yeah, that was what the conclusion he came oh. to based on the fact that Winchell had mentioned that they were both together at the same time. Insane. And and now, what was your most recent or most factual uh, case of uh, Ted Healy dying? Oh, well, yeah. What's your take on the, well, mis- the mysterious death of Ted Healy? Yeah, I didn't read that new book that came out, which is supposedly debunks the story about uh, Wallace Bury uh, uh, curb stomping him to death and then yeah. covering it up, saying that sailors did it. Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't have a take on it. I took a lot of heat uh, when my book came out from nerdy Stooge fans for <laughs> quoting uh, the Mo Howard biography or autobiography where he says. That Wallace Beery uh, probably curb stomped Ted Healy, and a lot of nerds were like, "Ah, that's been debunked." But I sometimes go for the better story. You Why know, not? I don't want these stories yeah. to be debunked? Print, print the legend. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the Stooge fundamentalists came for you, huh? <laughs> wasn't Cubby bro- wasn't Cubby, Cubby Broccoli the producer of the Bond films involved in that altercation too? Yeah, Cubby Broccoli. Cubby Broccoli was involved in some way. MGM, a lot of these early MGM guys like Eddie Mannix, who was the fixer, and a lot of these people, uh, Samuel Marks was another guy. They really knew how to to exercise their clout and cover things up. But of course, now it's all kind of come out. Busby Berkeley was another famous one when he killed somebody. In uh, a car. And driving. Yeah, 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 yeah. On Mulholland Drive. That was a famous one. And didn't Clark Gable kill someone in his car? I, I don't know about that. I, the one, I know about Clark Gable and uh, his love child, David Jansen. Right? <laughs> well, by all means, <laughs> expound well, on that, that. Isn't that a famous, you guys don't know that? That's isn't that a famous, famous story? Yeah. Famous rumor. Yeah. And you look at the headshots of David Jansen in the 50s, he just looks like Clark Gable without a mustache. Giant ears, same face. You know, I, I, I can completely believe it. We're we're jumping all around here as we as we do, but on this, uh, <laughs> what do you what do you make of Drew's uh, claim that uh, that uh, Clark Gable was involved with Andy Devine sexually? <laughs> I love that. I love that. I, uh, Andy Devine. We spread Andy that one. Devine has a closet full of skeletons. Come on, of raspy voice skeletons. Didn't we talk last time I was on the show about that town somewhere in America? There's a small town and everything is named after Andy Devine. I think you did. And, and, well, Drew Friedman also (laughs) had a story. His stories, you know, disgust even me. (laughs) They're all crazy. (laughs) One of them was that there was a love affair between Eddie Cantor and Shimp Howard. (laughs) 
Based on what? I don't know. <laughs> Based well, on a drawing well, that Drew did and then drawing. The story Drew, yeah, Drew, 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 Drew illustration. Drew Friedman, one of his <laughs> one of his evidence was that Chimp had long hair. Drew Drew lo- <laughs> Drew loves the whole Rock Hudson Jim Neighbors thing though. He died he dined out on that. Well, you know, there was a before Jim Neighbors came out of the came out of the closet. This elderly comedian who's still alive and completely forgotten, never had much of a career in terms of fame. A guy named Jackie Curtis with two S's. Um, I've seen interviews he, with him on your website. Yeah, he yeah. did a bunch of Ed Sullivan shows. He was one of these guys who, every time you saw him, he was in a different comedy team. Curtis and Antone, Curtis and this, Curtis and that. And they never really clicked. But he told me that he attended. Rock Hudson and Jim Neighbors mock wedding that they had for private friends. I love it. A fake wedding in which um, they both dressed in wedding dresses, Rock Hudson and Jim Neighbors, and that they did. They exchanged vows, and supposedly Jackie Curtis insists this is true. They uh, released a photo album as a gag after the fact. And he had photos of this wedding of rock Hudson feeding Jim neighbors, the first piece of cake and getting icing all over his face. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, this is according to a 93 year old comedian. So I, I have a tendency to believe him, even if it's not true. And print, print Jimmy, Jimmy Stewart actually did come out of the closet at one point. Jimmy Stewart, John, Jimmy Stewart, <laughs> Jim Neighbors. <laughs> Jimmy yeah, Stewart just, just like getting pissed on. By, by midgets. By midgets, yes. Yeah, Jim Neighbors came out of the closet just maybe one or two years before he died. Yeah. He and his lover in Hawaii came yeah. out of the closet, yeah. What, th- this is, speaking of, con- <laughs> so I'm going to go back a little bit. We'll come, I'll come back and give you a fresh scandal in a minute, Gilbert. But, did, Gilbert, did you ever hear of a comic named Murray Roman? It's, boy. I mean, it sounds like a combination of twenty different comics. Right, and I bring it yeah. up because it's sort Roman? of a, he, he he sort of leads to a turning point in, in Cliff's career because oh. and, and explain <laughs> Cliff because I think our our and our readers a lot of our listeners got the book, but I think people would be interested to know how you transition from being a comic to the foremost authority. Yeah. If I may uh, well, quote uh, yeah. the professor Irwin. Uh, Murray Roman was an old school guy pretending to be young and hip in the late sixties. He had a comedy record and that's how I was introduced to him called. You can't beat people up and have them say, I love you. It was on Bill Cosby's record label, Tetragrammaton in 1969. It had a kaleidoscopic psychedelic cover. It was the weirdest comedy record. It had liner notes by Tommy Smothers from the Smothers brothers. And it wasn't a very funny record, but when you listen to it, he sounded like a guy doing an impression of Lenny Bruce. Like he had that cadence. Yeah. He was an older guy, but he was like, yeah, man, can you dig it? You know, doing all this sort of slang that even coming out of the guy's voice, you could tell was labored, but it was a psychedelic comedy record. He would hit a punchline and then the punchline would go into reverb echoing. And then he'd go <laughs> oh, into his next joke. <laughs> and then music would cut in and out of, out of each of the jokes. And I was very curious about this record because I'd never heard about this guy, Murray Roman, and I found it in a flea market when I was 24. And when I was still doing stand-up, I met the Smothers Brothers at a festival or at a show, and I asked Tommy Smothers, who is Murray Roman? Because I have this record, and you wrote the liner notes. He goes, oh, Murray was one of our writers, but he died uh, young. But in the 50s, he was an agent at MCA, 
and he went to prison for some sort of fraud scandal stealing from his clients. He had represented the Everly brothers at one point. Wow. And he went to jail for like five or six years. And when he came out of jail in order to reinvent himself, he became a stand-up comic and started play, playing places like The Hungry Eye and The Purple Onion. Wild. But and he's tw- he was 20 years older than all these other guys like Dick Gregory, but he tried to be hip and cool. And he put out this comedy record and Tommy Smothers hired him as a writer on the show. So and a guy so goes from being arrested for fraud to reinventing himself as a comic to being a Smothers Brothers writer. Exactly. Quite he a was journey. part of that same writer's room with Steve Martin and Carl Gottlieb yeah. and Bob Hamilton Einstein, Camp Bob Einstein. And, and Bob Einstein. Yeah, all the legends. He was in that writer's room. And so I decided to write an article about it. It was really the first time I ever wrote about an old comedian. It was about this guy, Murray Roman. I phoned Tommy Smothers. You know, we had met him a month earlier. And talked to him for an hour about it. And then he said, you know who would know more about this than me is Steve. Have you talked to Steve yet? And I said, Steve? He goes, Steve Martin. I said, no, I haven't talked to him yet. You know, I'm a 25-year-old kid in, in Canada. I have no access to Steve Martin. He says, I'll phone Steve Martin and tell him to call you. How about that? And an hour later, my phone rang and it was Steve Martin. He was on set of some movies. He goes, I hear you're writing about Murray Roman. I said, yes. Yeah. So we talked for like an hour about Murray Roman. And then when it was over... Steve Martin kept me on the line. He goes, who else are you writing about? Cause I'm a really, I'm really into a lot of those old guys. He goes, you know who one of my favorites is? Steve Martin is saying this, you know, who one of my favorites is Jackie Vernon. I love Jackie Vernon. And so Steve Martin and I bonded over our mutual love of Jackie Vernon. And that sort of set me on the path of researching and writing about old comedians. That was the start. I of love it. that. I mean, I love asking guests about turning points in their, in their yeah. lives, but isn't that cool? I mean, that's how he transitioned from being a wow. performer into kind of, and you, you kind of knew at that point, this is for me. This is, this is well, a life to- for me. It- well, if Tommy Smothers and Steve Martin were enthusiastic about what I was doing, I took that as, you know, maybe a nice indication. Absolutely. Keep doing it. And that. have you heard have you heard any of Gilbert's Jackie Vernon, by the way? No, here's, please. Here's some slides for my vacation. <laughs> here's Manuel, our tour guide, leading us around the quicksand. Here we are from the waist up. Here's a bunch of picks and ropes and things. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever see anybody you know, do Jackie Vernon before? You know, well, you know, there's a comedy record. Maybe you could uh, emulate this. There's a comedy record of Jackie Vernon singing Yesterday by the Beatles, doing a cover in his voice. Wow. Have you ever heard that? Yesterday, <laughs> all my troubles seem so far away. <laughs> <laughs> but he's got the clicker in his hand. Yeah. <laughs> now, and Hal Hal Roach had collaborations with Mussolini. I thought you were going to say Hal Holbrook. Hal Holbrook, <laughs> also he, involved yes. with Mussolini. Yes. There were t- there were two two people in comedy that were among Mussolini's biggest supporters, and not just Mussolini's biggest supporters in the United States <laughs> or in comedy, but just. Mussolini's two biggest supporters, period. One was Hal Roach, of course, who produced all those two real comedy shorts, Our Gang, Laurel and Hardy. The other was Will Rogers. You know, that saying, I never met a man I didn't like, it may be in reference to this. Will Rogers advocated on behalf of Mussolini in the 1920s in his newspaper column, not as satire, not as humor, said, we need somebody like Mussolini in the United States. And so both of them were sort of uh, fascist sympathizers in the late 20s and early 30s. And Hal Roach went into collusion with the Mussolini regime. They were going to produce 
pro-fascist Italy propaganda films at Hal Roach Studios in Hollywood. Um, his son, um, I forget his name, Vittorio, Vittorio. Mussolini, I think. Vittorio. Vittorio. Yeah. Flew to Hollywood, and they had a big reception for him, star-studded invitation, um, a black tie gala. Betty Davis was at, that, was at that event. Betty Davis was there, and she yeah. wore a scarf that was in the color of the Italian flag. And at this point... It was well known Italy was a fascist country. This wasn't the beginnings of it. It had been fascist for almost 10 years uh, by this point. And they kind of thought, well, it's a head of state. You know, that's all they cared about. We want to be there and be seen. Eventually, the sort of left-wing people in, in Hollywood uh, were agitating against this. A lot of the screenwriters who were later blacklisted, one of their first sort of political acts was speaking out against this relationship between Hal Roach Studios and Mussolini. And essentially ran them out of town. They canceled this plan because of the blowback that they got from a lot of the sort of progressive Hollywood people at the time. So Betty Davis was a fascist sympathizer? No, she, oh, rather, she just attended this party. No. <laughs> I, that I like. <laughs> <laughs> but the, that's one of the most interesting chapters in The Comedians, too, is where you're talking about the, the early days of radio, Cantor's early days in radio. And how much money yes, it, Cantor had raised for uh, children, vic- victims of the Nazis. Eddie, Eddie Cantor was the first celebrity to try and help Jewish refugees escape Nazi Germany, starting around 33, 34. And then it became an official campaign as part of the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League in 1935. And because he was doing that, he would get heckled at radio broadcasts by fascist sympathizers in the audience. So there's a famous story around 1936, 37, or 38, Eddie Cantor was doing a live broadcast at KNX in Los Angeles, the CBS affiliate. When the show was over, and this is when like Park Your Carcass was on the show and Burt Gordon, the mad Russian, was on the show. After the show, Eddie Cantor would address the live studio audience and make an appeal on behalf of Jewish refugees and fighting against Nazism. And remember, this is four years before America entered the war. Right. He was heckled by a fascist sympathizer in the audience who said, stick to jokes, you don't know what you're talking about. And Burt Gordon, the mad Russian, ran after the dude in the studio audience and attacked him and started beating the shit out of him. Got into a big fist fight about that, on Gil? the floor of CBS. And um, there was a meeting with CBS... Eddie Cantor and the American tobacco um, company who made Lucky Strike cigarettes saying, you cannot speak out against Hitler anymore. You cannot speak on behalf of Jewish refugees anymore. Cantor, you're going to ruin our, 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 you know, our good standing with bigots in our uh, buying audience. You know, you cannot talk about politics anymore. And Eddie Cantor wouldn't, but there was this pressure to maybe cancel the Eddie Cantor show because he wouldn't stop speaking out against Hitler in uh, 1935, 36, 37, 38. How about that, Gil? That's scary. Yeah. Yeah. Could, ha- could happen again. That's very scary. So what was the what was the sponsors again? Tobacco company. Uh, the Amer- the pack- yeah, the American Tobacco Company, um, uh, which they famously parodied in Mad Men. They, they were one of the yeah. most powerful companies in all of radio and advertising they sponsored everything so basically what they said went not just about politics but if they didn't like your joke it had to be taken out if the sponsor if the tobacco company didn't like your joke even though they had no creative involvement in the show they had final say over what uh, ended up in the program that stuff is wild it's in in the book too in the, the section you say the ad agency in charge of the account young and rubicant sent a memo to the network 
saying we are of the opinion that we should present Eddie Cantor to the public strictly as a funny man and try to avoid any publicity that would indicate that he ever had a serious thought or is guilty of yeah. a serious deed. Yeah, <laughs> wow. People, they didn't want him taken people, seriously. Well, people forget in that pre, pre-war period before 1941, there were a lot of isolationists and a lot of fascist sympathizers in the United States, and they bought Lucky Strike cigarettes, so they didn't want to offend them even though they were fascist sympathizers. Incredible. There was this thing I always heard about where people would be accused of, um, uh, like, sort of like a pre- premature uh, fascist, anti-fascist sympathies. Right. Like, right. Yeah, the, the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League was part of that. Anybody who was part of the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League, which was founded in 1935... Later, during the Red Scare, were often blacklisted because they felt that it was an indication that you were a communist if you were opposed to the Nazis before 1941. Because largely in the United States, it largely was the Communist Party of the United States that was advocating against Nazism, probably for self-serving reasons, but they still were the only ones really speaking out during that period. I want to ask you about the Red Scare stuff from the book. Uh, uh, in a second, but while we're on the subject of Nazis, <laughs> were, the, yeah. were the three? Did the three Stooges end up on Hitler's death list? Well, I've never. Found I had confirmation. heard that. <laughs> yeah, there, certainly. Supposedly, Chaplin. supposedly there was this thing called the kill list that was sort of like Nixon's enemies list in the sixties. Hitler had this kill list. I have never been able to find verification that there was such a list, but supposedly. Charlie Chaplin was on that list. The Three Stooges were on that list. Jack Benny was on that list. And the reason was because Charlie Chaplin made The Great Dictator. The Three Stooges made You Nutsy Spy. And uh, Jack Benny made To Be or Not To Be. And supposedly ridiculing Hitler was uh, a reason for... He was really pissed off, especially with Charlie Chaplin, because Charlie Chaplin wasn't Jewish. The other comedians were Jewish, so he hated them regardless. But Chaplin was apparently Hitler's favorite. Maybe the mustache was influenced by Chaplin. Some Some people have theorized it. Um, So, yeah, supposedly the Three Stooges. I think, again, it was Mo Howard who said that in his autobiography. Yeah, because they did another one. There's those those Nazi spies. Oh, you'll never heil again. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> or I'll I'll never heil again. Yes. <laughs> there's there's some fantastic Hal Roach uh, two reel studio shorts um, that are all star car- people playing Hitler and people playing Mussolini, and those are really well uh, worth seeking out. I think there's two of them. One of them takes place in hell. So there's a guy in a devil suit, like prodding Mussolini and Hitler to do things. They're very, very broad comedies from 1943, 44 that are worth, uh, worth seeking out. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. But first a word from our sponsor. Well, on the subject of, of, of the red scare. And again, the book is such a page turner. Uh, and I, you know, I've read it twice. But in but in doing research for having you back, I I dug into it again and just the the gold. I mean, I couldn't the, the vaudeville chapter, as I told you on the phone, is my favorite. And we want to ask before we get off with you, we have to ask about Swain's rats and cats again. But on this because Gilbert and I are just uh, obsessed with that. On the subject of the Red Scare and McCarthyism, uh, and some of the people that got caught up in it, I want to ask you specifically about one person, and that is uh, Mr. Julius Marx. Yeah, well, Groucho Marx was hosting You Bet Your Life at the time, and 
one of his uh, lead mu- musicians, is it say there? Jerry, Jerry Fielding. Fielding. I can't remember who it was. One of his yeah. lead musicians. In the- I think it was. It is? Uh, so one of his yeah. lead musicians in the orchestra of You Bet Your Life, you remember when they spun the wheel and they would play music or they'd play Groucho on and off. Um, he had been named uh, in Red Channels or one of those um, Red Scare magazines, newspapers, and they wanted to get rid of him. And Groucho said, well, no, I don't, I don't want to get rid of him. And the reason he had been named was because he had been advocating for the integration of the musicians' unions. In those days, in the 40s, mm-hmm. there was a union just for black musicians and a union just for white musicians. And the guy from You Bet Your Life Orchestra was advocating that they integrate. So this is why they went after him. And Groucho Marx initially stood up for him, but then it sounded like a DeSoto or whoever the sponsor was, was thinking about pulling their sponsorship on this because of this issue. And so Groucho said, okay, go ahead and, and fire him. And they did. And he was blacklisted for this musician for several years. And Groucho said in the seventies that it was the only real major regret of his career was, um, buckling to those pressures. Yeah. That must've hurt him because he was, he was known for being a stand up guy. I mean, he came he came out when he got a little cloud, he came out against ethnic acts. Yeah. And Groucho Marx and, had a big and, FBI file. There was an FBI, you can read it online. There was an FBI file, most of it redacted. It's still all um, scribbled in black marker. But in Groucho Marx's FBI's uh, file, there's a complaint because on one episode of You Bet Your Life, he referred to America as the United Snakes of America. Mm -hmm. And these angry sort of John Birch Society type people wrote in these angry letters saying, I think Groucho Marx is a red. I think he's a commie. You should look into him. And so J. Edgar Hoover did amass this large file on Groucho Marx. And then in the late 60s, Groucho Marx came in out in favor of the Chicago 8 when Abby Hoffman was arrested in Chicago. And Nicholas Ray, the filmmaker who made Rebel Without a Cause, was planning a movie about uh, the Chicago trials in the late sixties about the hippies versus the police. And he was going to cast Groucho Marx as the judge in the trial, in the Abby Hoffman trial. It never happened, but all of these things just sort of, um, thickened his FBI file because, uh, he was considered a, you know, a famous name who maybe was giving, um, uh, credence to radical causes. Well, I'd like to think his heart was in the right place and that he really did regret the fielding incident. And you know, one, one yeah, of, he did. Yeah. One of the things in your book is what you were talking about uh, the old days of the stereotype acts. Of course, Gilbert laughs. You know, the yeah. Merry Wops. Oh yes, <laughs> but, <laughs> but these 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 Jewish acts and these really these these really unpleasant, unflattering stereotypes. Yes. Yeah. There's a there was a guy named uh, Harry Green. Have you guys ever talked about Harry Green? No, I don't think so. Harry Green between 1930 and 35 at Paramount. You watch old movies. He's in them all the time. He was essentially the Jewish step and fetch it. He did this way over the top, broad ethnic character. He wore these round horn rim glasses and it was all Yiddishisms. And like step and fetch it, he would mumble things under his breath that weren't in the script that if you understood Yiddish were detectable as these sort of, I don't know if they were subversive, but they were off script things that normally wouldn't have made it past Harry Green. Harry Green, but it was pretty racist. When you watch it today, it's like really cringeworthy. He's in a bunch of early Bing Crosby movies, and then they got rid of him. He was like persona non grata after 1935 because it was very broad, very offensive. Even in the early 30s, that style of playing a Jewish character like that was already considered um, taboo and old-fashioned. And one of my always favorite topics, 
famous anti-Semites in Hollywood. <laughs> Where yes. do you begin? Yeah. <laughs> well, the two two biggest that I can think of from two different eras in the twenties and thirties, of course, it was Frank Fay, but in the sixties, fifties, and sixties, it was Walter Brennan. Walter Brennan was the biggest anti-Semite, and he was a racist as well, according to his son. When um, Walter Brennan was making that show, what's it called? Will Sonnet? The, the uh, something the guns, Will guns of Will Sonnet. Guns was that, his, Will was that Sonnet. his show? Yeah. Yeah, he was in that show, and he was on set of that program the morning that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And when news got to set about the assassination, supposedly Walter Brennan started doing one of those Treasure of the Sierra Madre jigs, dancing a oh, jig in celebration of the assassination. So Unbe- he hated... He hated he hated Jewish people. He hated black people. He thought that they were all in the pocket of some sort of communist uh, conspiracy. Walter Brennan. Well, I know there was that character actor Eugene Pallette, who they used to call oh, Froggy. That's right. Yeah, Eugene Pallette. Yeah, yeah. He was in he, like Sturgis's company. Yeah, he he played Friar Tuck in the Adventures of Robin that's Hood right. famously, and he refused to sit in the commissary with uh, other. Um, black actors at Warner Brothers, so I'm not sure uh, who offhand, but yeah, he, he he firmly believed in segregation. But that was in the 1940s when it was still federal policy to have segregation, whereas uh, in the 60s, uh, Walter Brennan, at the height of the civil rights movement, was calling out civil rights activists as being uh, um, no good commies. Fucking Walter Brennan. Wow. Son of a bitch. Well, you know, there's a healthy dose of anti-Semitism behind the blacklist in the first place. I mean, in, in addition to trying to weaken or if not bust unions outright. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot, a lot of that grew out of there are too many Jews in Hollywood and this, we, you know, we've got to do something about this. And Yeah, you know, it's weird in those days, Madison, in those days, Madison Square Garden could be rented to any sort of quote unquote civic organization. So American Nazis in yeah, the you can 19- see Yeah, you can see those videos online. Yeah, in 1946, after the war, uh, the American Nazi Party and some of their sort of um, associates, racist groups, rented Madison Square Garden and held a pro-fascist rally. And the name of the pro-fascist rally was the Friends of Frank Fay, because Frank <laughs> Fay, ah, the first stand-up, Frank Fay. Frank Fay was coming out on side of the Catholics in the Spanish Civil War rather than the Loyalists. So loyal, you know, it was a big cause in the 30s for progressives versus regressives because left-wing people, left-wing people were being murdered in Spain at that time in the 30s. And so Actors Equity, the Actors Union, came out with this statement in support of those fighting against the fascists in Spain. But because the fascists were aligned with the Catholic Church and Frank Fay was Catholic, he felt that this was an attack on the Catholic Church. So it turned into this big to-do, and Frank Fay got kicked out of the Actors Union. And so fascists came out in support of Frank Fay, and they did all these pro-Nazi speeches and racist speeches at Madison Garden. Frank Fay was their guest of honor, and they called it the Friends of Frank Fay. How about that kill oh my god frank fay who you credit as being basically the first the first official kind of stand-up comic now the first stand and tell stand stand there and tell jokes yeah, instead of doing a character instead of doing costumes instead of right. doing shtick he just went on stage and talked in a tuxedo like a normal person and it became uh, very influential jack benny bob hope milton burl they all cited Frank Fay as a huge influence on their style of stand-up, and at the same time, they all criticized him for being this raving, 
racist. And of course, Milton Berle famously attacked Frank Fay when he came off stage at the palace because he heard Frank Fay whispering under his breath about Milton Berle, get that little Jew kid out of here, get that little Jew kid out of here. And Milton Berle waited for him when Frank Fay got off stage and he smashed him in the face with this piece of plywood from like the scenery and tore open his nose and Frank Fay had to go to the hospital. Milton Berle was so enraged. How about that, Gil? Oh, I like that. <laughs> Finally, a great Milton Berle story that doesn't have to do with this cock. <laughs> you sure it was plywood that he hit him with? <laughs> now, I, I was reading somewhere that Meyer Lansky used to organize, like, gangs to beat up the Nazis at these rallies. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know Good that at stuff. all. I did know, I did know that, that. Meyer Lan- I did know that Meyer Lansky was the connection why Steve Allen broadcast a number of Steve Allen shows from Havana in the months right before the Cuban Revolution in 1959. They did all these remotes. Lou Costello was on a lot of them. And there were a lot of threats from Cuban revolutionaries saying Steve Allen, the Steve Allen show, stay out of Cuba because this is we're, we're about to take it over. And it was right around that time. And Bill Dana was with them. And he said that at one point they had to cancel an episode of the Steve Allen show because it had been inundated with stink bombs um, from revolutionaries who didn't take kindly to uh, Steve Allen colluding with Meyer Lansky and using Cuba as their sort of foreign playground. Steve Allen, a good old radical. Yeah, a guy who also hired people who were blacklisted. Steve Allen hired people that were blacklisted, but he never, ever hired a black comedian on The Tonight Show. When he had the chance to do so, when Steve Allen had the chance and he would bring on black jazz musicians, he would talk in favor of integration and the civil rights movement. But when he had the chance to book black comedians like Timmy Rogers or whoever, he said he wouldn't do it because white audiences would never accept jokes coming from a black man like Mort Saul. And then just a couple of years later, Dick Gregory emerged and appeared on the Jack Parr Tonight Show, smashing that theory. But Steve Allen, for all the stuff that he did in civil rights, he literally refused to black, refused to black comedians. Now, how, how strange and disappointing. And on the subject of disappointing, what the hell is with Lou Costello supporting McCarthy? Lou Costello, also I mean, depressing. a lot of people... Oh. Well, a lot of people just heard the word communist and just assumed that that meant I have to fight against it. So... In the civil rights era, Martin Luther King and a lot of the people around him, Bayard Rustin and James Farmer, famous black civil rights organizers, had been members of the Communist Party back in the 1930s. So that was enough reason for you to be suspect and considered an enemy, even if you were fighting for a good cause later on, you know. So Lou Costello wanted everybody on the set of the Abbott and Costello movies to sign loyalty oaths and would fire anybody who didn't. And one of the people he demanded sign a loyalty oath was this guy, John Grant, who I think wrote their version of who's on first based it on a previous routine and kind of punched it up. And if you watch any of the old Abbott and Costello movies in the credits, it always says special material by, and I think his name is John Grant. Is that the right name? Well, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll double check it. Lou Costello demanded that, uh, that, uh, he signed this loyalty oath and he goes, Lou, you've known me for 20 or 30 years. You're questioning my loyalty now. And he refused to sign it, so he fired him. So that was the end of their association. After that, there were no more Abbott and Costello movies that said special material by. How about that, Gil? Jeez. This is the disillusionment what else you got on this? This is a depressing <laughs> yeah, These are the most depressing stories. It's the most depressing I love stories. this what shit. Is, 
I sent uh, you a list of stories yeah. that are more upbeat. Come okay, on. how about how I, about, I just wanted uh, to hear about Abbott and Costello's porn collection. <laughs> what about what about that? The, the, this is on the email thread that you and I are on, uh, Cliff. With yeah, uh, well, with the, Scott it's Larry in the FBI file. It's in Abbott and Costello's FBI file. The FBI said that Lou Costello had pornography coming out of his ears. That's the phrase that they used. Because we heard Red Skelton was the big porn collector. Yeah, yeah that's true. Red Skelton and Lou Costello and George Raft have the See, biggest I heard, collections of pornography I heard in Hollywood. Bud Abbott had a tremendous collection. There's also a story. I'm trying to remi- remember who it involves between Lou Costello and a comedian who had children. I can't remember who. They played a prank on them and sent a film print that was supposed to be a children's film. Uh, maybe it was that, that movie he did where he grows into a giant. What's that Lou Costello movie? 30 Candy foot Rock. bride of Candy Rock. Oh yeah. 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 Something like that. Was, so, somebody was requesting a print of that movie and instead of sending it over that very innocuous children's movie, they sent out a print of uh, hardcore pornography and screened it in front of this children's party accidentally. Lou Costello's idea of a prank. Oh, gee. Now you're getting into Gilbert's area. Yes. What about this one? What about, I'll pull one off the list. Uh, by the way, I can't, it, it disturbs me to know that Stinky had to sign a loyalty oath. Stinky signed a loyalty <laughs> well, anybody oath? Anybody that worked on Evan Costello. Surely <laughs> Joe- so. I'm extrapolating. What is this about you- people loving to pelt Rudy Valley with fruit? And please, oh, tell, yes. please tell us there's a Cesar Romero connection. <laughs> <laughs> there, there may have... <laughs> It may have inspired Cesar Romero. He was breaking into the biz at the time. Uh, there was a trend. You know, in the old days, they always talked about how there were these college student crazes like swallowing goldfish or cramming yourself into a telephone booth. You know, sure. there was all these. Yeah. The comedians would always reference that in the 50s. Well, in the early 30s, there was this trend of attending Rudy Valley concerts when he was already at the height of his fame, had a hit radio show and pelting him with rotten fruit. So it <laughs> happened in Boston. It happened in Detroit. It happened in Chicago. Uh, every concert that Rudy Valley did for several Poor months, guy. college students were throwing a rotten fruit at him <laughs> and they would have to uh, stop the show. If you look at newspaper articles about Rudy Valley in the early thirties, this is constantly coming up. It became a trend, a craze to assault uh, Rudy Valley with rotten fruit. And Rudy Valley, of course, was known for being super temperamental, involved in a lot of scandals. He punched a busboy in Miami Beach on on um, unconscious because he spoke to him right before he went on stage. Um, and he was sued. <laughs> so it's Gilbert's done that. <laughs> you've you've cold cocked people all, for approaching all you. All the time. Before you get on stage. Now I, I now Rudy Valley sounds like he was probably a racist and anti. I heard he was the cheapest man in Hollywood. That's what I'd heard about Rudy Valley. He was very cheap. His autobiography, if you can find a copy, is a must read. Okay, there's an entire cha- there's an entire <laughs> chapter, about forty pages, just devoted to settling an old score with Victor Borga. Oh, well, yeah. Rudy, love to read that. Rudy Valley versus Victor Borger, 40 pages, says that I gave him his start in this business. He's a he's a he's an ingrate. He's a low life. He doesn't blah, blah, blah. Just goes on and on and on ranting and raving about Victor Borga. It must be at least uh, a 30 or 40 pages. Well, your friend Ileana Douglas uh, knew Rudy Valley or early yes. in her career. Ask, ask her That's about right. that. OK, what about the story about the kingfish that's on your that's on your list here? <laughs> Uh, the actor, I love this the actor who played the kingfish, Tim Moore. Yes, 
Her name Tim is Sandy. Tim Moore, who was considered one of the funniest or maybe the funniest of all Chitlin Circuit comedians, Jack Carter told me that he thought Tim Moore was the funniest man who ever lived. He knew him personally, would go and see him perform live. But in the 1950s, Tim Moore got arrested for assault with a weapon. He went to his fridge and the roast beef that he had been saving was gone. <laughs> his wife had apparently... His wife had apparently eaten it, and he tried to murder his wife for eating his roast beef. And that was shortly... You should see the color Gilbert's turning. I love that so much, you lunatic. I love that stuff, too. Here's another... Go ahead. I got, oh, another, I just say, I got another good one I here. Gonna, why, why did Sammy Davis... Say, right? Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Oh, why Sammy did, Davis. Why did Sammy yeah. Davis join the Church of Satan? Oh God! Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was. Uh, you know, it was that. It was the early seventies when Sammy Davis Jr. was doing a lot of sort of offbeat things. You know, he dated Linda Lovelace, I think, a couple times in the early seventies. Um, he would screen Deep Throat for private parties. Sammy Davis Jr. So he's getting into this sort of things you don't usually associate with Sammy. And one <laughs> of them say was. So. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Anton LaVey, he became friends with Anton LaVey, the high priest of the Church of Satan, and got into Satanism, doing ritualistic, Satanistic uh, rituals, sacrificing (laughs) things. Look look on this man's face, Cliff. (laughs) His jaw is hitting the table. This stuff is not hard to find. It's also not cloaked in rumor. Like You can find like Los Angeles Times articles from the 70s about Sammy Davis Jr. joining the Church of Satan. Wow. And this didn't work against him anyway. <laughs> no, man, he was the candy man. There was you couldn't you couldn't uh, take anything from Sam. Alton, why did uh, why did Jerry Lewis not like Lynn Redgrave? Oh yeah, shit man. I wish I brought that quote with me. I think I can paraphrase it. But you probably have talked about this on your show before in the late seventies when Jerry Lewis was starring in Hell's a Poppin' on Broadway. He did a version of Hell's a Poppin'. Yeah, sure. And it was a famous debacle. It closed shortly. Jerry Lewis blamed the critics, and he pulled a gun. Again, another pulling a gun story. Jerry Lewis pulled a gun on a reporter from New York Magazine. You can read that online as well. It's part of the story that the New York Magazine article, or writer wrote. Um, but he also was blaming Lynn Redgrave for the failure of the show, and they did not get along. And I guess one of the journalists asked Jerry Lewis what he thought of Lynn Redgrave. And he said, uh, uh, he goes, I should have taken my cock out and pissed on her. Was the Jerry Lewis quote. <laughs> Jerry, classy as always. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now Gilbert's happy. <laughs> you're a, you're a sick individual. What else is on the list? <laughs> now you you had a run in with Jerry. He, you said you told me on the phone that only two comics that you've interviewed over the years were were genuinely unkind to you. Or, or yeah, rude. the only two old guys that were sort of rude were Jerry Lewis and Marty Allen. The Jerry Lewis Marty, Marty. Uh, Marty's like the weasel, the nicest guy in the yeah. world. Not to Cliff. Yeah, the Jerry Lewis story isn't that good. It was just he was very non-communicative. I told it on the show before about with Drew about how yeah. Drew Friedman set it up for me. He said he's waiting, expecting your call. You can call him right now. That's I right. did. That's right. And then Jerry pretended like he wasn't waiting for my call. And he goes, I never do interviews. 
after Drew had said he'll right. do an interview. But yeah. Marty Allen, let's blame that one. Marty on Drew. Allen was bizarre. I was interviewing Marty Allen, and I would say, um, "So in 1955, you were in another comedy team with a guy named Mitch DeWood. Uh, what can you tell me about Mitch DeWood?" And then Marty Allen would go, "Uh huh. So, so what?" <laughs> Marty after was having every, a bad day. Jeez. Yeah, after every question, he said, so what? So what's your point? So, so what? And this went on and on. And then I was talking to Mark Marin because Marty Allen did Mark Marin's podcast as well. And as you know, he Mark does his show out of his house. Sure. And I said, Marty Allen was really rude to me. Was he rude to you? He goes, no, he wasn't rude to me, but he absolutely destroyed my bathroom because <laughs> apparently Marty Allen didn't have the best aim at the age of 90. He said that he looked like he had intentionally ruined Mark's bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, Gil. <laughs> but I've never heard bad stuff about Marty Allen. You've been in that bathroom. You've been yes, in Mark yes, Allen's bathroom. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a, the first we had Marty on this show, and he was an angel. So it, this shot, this takes us back. Gino's going to be very upset. Yes. <laughs> about this. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. After this, what about this one's right up Gilbert Sally? Oh. What about the George Goober Lindsay story? Okay. Oh, <laughs> well, George Goober Lindsay was a uh, semi regular on Hee Haw, and he yes, and Grandpa he Jones, was. you know, Grandpa Jones was considered the, the patriarch of country comedy, of hillbilly comedy. He was an older guy, very experienced. He was also very conservative. And in fact, talking about the Red Scare, Grandpa Jones recorded a 78 novelty single in the early 50s called I Ain't No Communist. So he was a pretty conservative dude. Jeez. And George Goober Lindsay used to love to annoy Grandpa Jones. At Hee Haw, they all shared one big communal dressing room with the exception of Roy Clark and Buck Owens who had their own, but everybody else was in the same big sort of airplane hangar of a dressing room. And Goober Lindsay used to take his underwear off and then tuck his cock and balls between his legs like he had a vagina and walk <laughs> over to Grandpa Jones and say he was a girl. Touch it, touch it, I'm a girl. And Grandpa Jones would get annoyed and storm out. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> that made him happy. Oh. <laughs> you just you made his night. What are you? And speaking of that, speaking of balls, what do you know about Mr. Belvedere sitting on his own balls? That's a that's a Hollywood. Yeah, uh, I I was I was on the sound. I was in the studio. I was doing. I was a guest on another show, and Mr. Belvedere was being recorded on another soundstage, and all of a sudden the talk. Throughout the studio was that Mr. Belvedere sat on his balls. <laughs> <laughs> I what, love that. I love what do, that. What do you know about this, Cliff? I don't know much about Mr. Belvedere's balls, but I do know that uh, I do. I do think that Bob Euchre is one of the most uh, uh, underrated and hilarious dudes hilarious. in show business. Should get him on your show. Why did Steve Allen fire Alan Sherman? Uh, oh. I love this story. Your friend Steve Binder, who you interviewed on yes, your show, a lovely man, told me this told me this story because I had found a thing in my research that Alan Sherman had been fired just one episode into um, his tenure as the producer of the Steve Allen Show, an early '60s version of the Steve Allen Show, 
And the reason he was fired, I love this, and I don't know why some practical joker doesn't do this more often, during Steve Allen's monologue or when he was talking, whenever he was saying anything that uh, wasn't supposed to be funny, uh, Alan Sherman would flick on the applause sign and the <laughs> laughter sign. <laughs> and he did that like several times throughout the show, so that just for no reason people started applauding when Steve Allen is talking. <laughs> and so Steve Binder got or Alan Sherman got fired uh, shortly after that. I'll jump back to it. So I'll jump back to I love that one too. I'll jump back to a few from the list, but this is one of Gilbert's favorite subjects and I was reading this part of the book over again last night and that's the that's the stuff about the nightclubs and the mob. And specifically yeah. uh the Joey, you know Joey Lewis, you know this story yeah, that yeah. they slit his they slit his throat. Yeah, his, yeah, they what a absolutely horrible story. He was working for Capone, I guess. Yeah, he was working, uh, I can't remember if it was Capone or the rival faction was Capone, but he did something. He had a residency um, in Chicago at a nightclub, and he went and accepted another gig without permission. He did not realize that he was, you know, the mob's comedian, and you couldn't go and take another gig without their say-so. He took a gig at a rival mob club, and he said in defiance, he said, you can't tell me what to do. You don't own me. And they said, yeah, we do own you. So later that night at his hotel room, he got a visit from three thugs. One who was apparently Sam Giacana before he was a famous mobster. He was just an underling and, of course, uh, cut his uh, throat and almost cut out his tongue. And it's weird when you watch Joey Lewis on Ed Sullivan later on, you can still see the scar on the side of his face yep, from where yep, he was yep. sliced. And if you hear him, he's in a movie with um, Jane Withers called Private Buckaroo. And another movie from that period, and his voice is so gravelly. Apparently, before this incident, he had like a very sweet, smooth, sing-songy voice. But then afterwards, he just has this crazy voice because he had to relearn how to talk and relearn how to acquire the ability to uh, to speak. But because he never squealed on the mafia, he became like their darling, and they set him up in all the best nightclubs in America: the Copacabana, the weird twist, Ciro's. Yeah, he always played New Year's Eve uh, um, in those clubs. But yeah. You know, it's funny because we've had a lot of people on the show. We've had uh, uh, Tony Sandler was here and Ronnie Shell. A lot of people who worked for the mob either in Vegas or in clubs. And you hear the same thing, which is they were better to us than the, than the, the corporate owners, the corporate landlords. Yeah. But when you read your book, I mean, Jack Carter on the run from a hitman. Shecky got beaten up at one point. Uh, what's the Jerry Lewis, uh, excuse me, the Joey Bishop story at a club called El Dumpo? Yeah, Joey Bishop was in a comedy trio called the Bishop Brothers, and I'm pretty sure that none of them were brothers. There was a guy who lived a long life named Rummy Bishop, who Drew Friedman loves because he's got this crazy-looking face <laughs> right? and was in a comedy team and with he's named Rummy. But I don't think they were actually brothers. But anyways, he was doing this trio, the Bishop Brothers, um, some roadhouse. In fact, there's a photo of the crime scene. Um, a guy was murdered in the audience while they were on stage, and they just kept performing, pretending that nothing was happening because they were guilt. afraid that if they got off stage, they would see too much or they, they would get involved. So they just kept powering through their act. It was in New Jersey, some roadhouse in 46 or 47, yeah. And Sammy Shore, Paulie's father, witnessed a murder from the stage? Actually, before we get to that, one other thing about Joey Bishop. Yeah. Did you know, I may have mentioned this on your show before, did you know that in the late 40s, he was briefly in a comedy team with Jack Sue of Barney Miller fame? No. Oh, you're breaking news, buddy. I did not yeah, know Joey that. Yeah, Joey Bishop. 
Joy Bishop and Jack Sue did a two-man act in the late 40s. It didn't last for very long. I don't know why. Um, but there's a blurb in Billboard about them breaking up after having performed together for a while. Jack Sue and Joey Bishop, Gilbert. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. <laughs> That's mind-blowing. But what happened to Sammy Shore? Sammy Shore was playing a place in Danville, Illinois. Again, a fight broke out in the audience and somebody was murdered. It was a mob-related dispute. Sammy Shore had a trumpet in his act at the time, and he started performing uh, The Saints Go Marching In just to sort of calm things in some way, just, again, distract people and keep performing. And in doing so, the club uh, loved him. They said, you really held it together when that guy was murdered. We're going to hold you over for two more months. So Sammy had to keep performing in this place where there was a murder for another two months because they felt he did such a great job. There you go, Gil. There's some yeah. there's some stories that challenge wow. the idea that the mom was so good to all of these performers. Cliff, this before is a we leak episode. Uh, no, I love it. I love all this dark history. Let's good talk Lord. about this. Is, this will lighten things up a little bit. You sent uh, this. You sent us this wonderful list, and this is your new preoccupation, and that is yes. celeb- uh, celebrity franchises. Oh yeah, be- yeah. In the yeah. late '60s and the early '70s, <clears throat> this was so common. Mostly because of Minnie Pearl. We were talking about Hee Haw. Uh, Minnie, <laughs> Minnie Pearl had the most successful fast food celebrity <laughs> franchise of the time called <laughs> Minnie Pearl's Fried Chicken. And Minnie Pearl's Fried Chicken was so successful that everybody else started cashing in. And the first person to cash in on this craze <clears throat> was Mahalia Jackson. Mahalia Jackson, show- the gospel ah! singer. It was called Mahalia Jackson's Glora Fried Chicken. It's true, ah! true, story, true name. You see the list I sent you of wow. these today? I yes. sent them to Dara. Now, so yeah, there I, was many. Per- sorry, go ahead. What I remember is Jack Lugman had that Jack's popcorn for a little while. Yeah, he's talking about actual locations. Yeah, like but real actual- places. Yeah. Well, the list I have here, we have <clears throat> Minnie Pearl's fried chicken, Mahalia Jackson's Glora fried chicken, Eddie Arnold's fried chicken. These were all chains. Chill Wills Chill had Will? a chicken had a chicken joint. Chill Wills Chuck Wagon Barbecue. <laughs> Chill Tex Wills <laughs> had his own restaurant. <laughs> Te- Tex Ritter's Chuck Wagon Restaurant. Eddie Arnold's Fried Chicken. Mickey Rooney's Star Barbecue. Love Hank that. William, Hank William Jr.'s Barbecue Pit. Um, Johnny Carson had a restaurant chain called Here's Johnny's, and it closed down in a scandal because um, the police got all these reports that people were eating at Here's Johnny's and getting sick, and they learned that the coffee pot had been spiked with uh, methamphetamines. <sighs> so Holy shut down God! Johnny Carson's restaurant, Here's Johnny. Um, there was the Petticoat Junction theme park in Panama City. Wait, wait, Conway. wait. How did, the, how did the drugs get into the coffee pot? <laughs> it apparently was some employee was doing something. I don't know. Um, but they tested the coffee after all these people got ill, and it tested positive uh, for narcotics. Oh, geez. What was Mickey Rooney's Weenie World? That I love. <laughs> that one, Mickey, that's my yeah. all-time favorite. <laughs> yeah, Mickey Rooney's Re- Weenie World and Mickey Rooney's um, Star Barbecue and Mickey Rooney's Lime Soda, they all came out around the same time. <laughs> he was doing all these stupid Hairbrain schemes in almost every situation, including most of these celebrities, in almost every situation, it was some sort of shell game 
where they were met with, met some sort of shady businessman who made off with all the money and then they had to file for bankruptcy. Uh, Conway Twitty's Twitty Burgers. Conway Twitty's Twitty Burgers. Oh, God. Tennessee um, Ernie Ford's Steak and Biscuits. Yes, yes. Mickey Mantle's Country Cooking. Roger right. Miller's King of the Road Motor Inn. Roger Miller had a motor inn called King of the Road Motor oh, Inn. These are, these are great. What was going on in the Petticoat Junction theme park? <laughs> Petticoat Junction theme park was in Panama City, Florida. It was uh-huh. the only one. Um, it was one of these things, sort of like the Bedrock City Flintstone theme parks, where they thought people would make a pilgrimage to these areas that were way out of the way if they built this stupid theme park based on a popular entity. But mostly they just kind of rusted away. Um, and there's still elements of these places. You can still sort of see the Petticoat Junction train that they built for it somewhere. But none of these places really succeeded. They kind of had a very low threshold of success. There was the Laugh-In Yeah, I was just going to ask you about the Laugh-In restaurant. Where was that? They sold... They sold Bippy Burgers. I think, of <laughs> oh, course. Oh, jeez. Gilbert, how did you never do this in your career? How- <laughs> you never op- open yes, up Yes, like- <laughs> I know. Gilbert's fried chicken. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. There was also, there was also uh, Steve Allen Honda. He, yeah, I Steve saw the Allen picture Randa. of that that you sent me. Steve he Allen Honda. Honda. Oh, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. He ran a Honda dealership on Santa Monica Boulevard, Walter Brennan, aforementioned, had the Indian Lodge Motel in Joseph, Oregon. I think it's I'm, still there. I'm sure he loved Native Americans. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he embraced them. <laughs> there was Johnny Weissmuller, Johnny Weissmuller's Natural Foods. There was also a place in Florida called Tarzan Land that Johnny Weissmuller was the spokesman for until it found out they didn't have the copyright or the legal basis to anything Tarzan. They changed the name to uh, Johnny Weissmuller's Tropical Wonderland. That's my favorite one on the list. Johnny Weissmuller's Tropical Wonderland. <gasps> hey, kids. <laughs> Pack your suitcases. Ken, oh. And then Ken, Ken Berry, who just What's, passed What's the away. Ken, Ken Berry gift shop? <laughs> it's, like, it's like a dream. This is like a fever dream I'm having. Yeah, it was in Encino. It was called It's the Berries. It was he and it's the wife. berries. This is this is yeah. this is making me so happy. Yeah, it was a Kenberry gift shop in Encino. There was the Arthur Treacher Service System. Is that pre- that Arthur- predates Arthur Treacher's fish and chips? I would yes, assume, which was big here in the it states. Does. The service center. It's the service system. Yeah. Service system. <laughs> yeah, when he was the sidekick on the Merv Griffin show. He opened this business because in the 30s he was famous for playing. <laughs> in the 30s he was famous for playing butlers like yeah, uh, sure. Jeeves and Ask Jeeves. Um, he created this butler maid staffing service. If you needed a butler or maid, you'd phone the Arthur Treacher uh, uh, service system and say, "I need a butler," and they would supply a butler for you. And Arthur Treacher appeared in all the ads. Again, it didn't last very long. Um, wow, this is Andy great. Gr- Andy Griffith's Good Eaten. Good Eaten. Which was a fast food. <laughs> we're, we, we've, we've, Gilbert, how did you never open like Gilbert Gilbert Gottfried's Brisket World? Yeah, <laughs> this is unbelievable. No one ever came to you. <laughs> no the, the shady guy is, with white hair and a briefcase. Hey, Gottfried. The funny thing is, most of these um, restaurants were in terrible neighborhoods. You know, like Jack in the Box. Often, if you hang out in a Jack in the Box uh, parking sure. lot, there's sketchy shit going on. Same with these places. Everything I looked up on Mini Pearl's Fried Chicken were about uh, armed robberies, about 
you know, God. being held up, all these places. And without exception, most of these people, these celebrities got ripped off. They got screwed out of their investment in some way or another. It's Sunday at Many Pearls. Friends, family, and food to plenty. What fried chicken might say? And of course, plenty of Many Pearls chicken. Plump, tasty, golden brown chicken, fried the old-fashioned way. <laughs> Not too greasy, and with just the right touch of herbs and spices. Now, maybe you won't get the chance to enjoy dinner with Many Pearl, but you can enjoy dinner with Many Pearl's chicken anytime you want. Most folks say Many Pearl's chicken is the best going. But you'll never know till you try it. Well, we saved the best one for last, and that's Cesar Romero's Cappuccino Ristorante. Oh boy! <laughs> oh, this I got. This I want to devote a whole show to. This one. <laughs> Cesar Romero's Cappuccino Ristorante, which was this sort of um, Hollywood attempt at an Italian restaurant. Back then, the word cappuccino was unknown. It was considered like a real high-end thing, but I think that place only lasted um, 10 months and they used his drawing, a drawing of uh, Cesar Romero as the logo, the same way they used a drawing of Alan Hale Jr. as the logo. I don't know why they didn't <laughs> use a photo. It was always this artist's rendering of these show, of these restaurants. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to put this out to our listeners because I know they're going to get jazzed by this. Post on the Listener Society uh, your, your favorite uh, celebrity theme restaurants or, ce- oh, okay. or celebrity franchises because there's got to be even more than this. Well, I should mention Minnie Pearl was so successful with Minnie Pearl's fried chicken that she tried two other uh, franchises. One was called, it sounds like a euphemism, but the other one was called Minnie Pearl's Roast Beef, which was a <laughs> restaurant chain. Well, the Kingfish should have... <laughs> <laughs> the Kingfish could have gotten there, gone there, and gotten a new yeah, roast beef. Right. Wouldn't have shot at his wife. On, if you, if you go on eBay, you can buy patches that you can sew onto your jacket of the logo that says "Mini Pearls Roast Beef" and wear it proudly on your lapel. I mean, we know and the modern she, ones. Go ahead. And then she also opened uh, Mini Pearls Daycare Centers, a series of child care centers. Mini Pearl Daycare name. Centers. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Oh, there's too much. Did all the daycare workers have a have a hat with a price tag on it? <laughs> I believe so. The I children think we, were forced to wear I, those. I think we also know what went on at the Chuck Berry Park Country Club. Yes, yeah, a lot of <laughs> underage sex going on there. That was a Catskills-style resort named after Chuck Berry, endorsed by Chuck Berry with his image on all the advertising. Chuck Berry's... Park Country Club Resort. But wasn't he hiding cameras in the ladies' rooms? You remember this story, yes, Gilbert? Yes, at, at restaurants that yeah. he owned? Right, right. Well, it was like Errol Flynn. Errol Flynn had a specially designed house with peepholes, secret two-way mirrors, and secret <laughs> passageways so he could spy on all of his guests having sex whenever he would hold a big party. In fact, that, that house went up for sale like five years ago. It's at the top of Mulholland Drive, and it's still full of all the secret passageways and peepholes because... Um, Errol Flynn liked to spy on people and uh, jerk off. <laughs> there you go, Jeez, <laughs> This is all too much. Okay. <laughs> Cliff, we could do six hours or six shows 
You make us so happy. Uh, just, just uh, I, I, which one? Which one do you want, Gil? Uh, the Rat Pack movie that was protested by neo Nazis, or how Maury Amsterdam got in trouble with mental health advocates? Holy fuck! <laughs> I'm I like I like anything with Nazis. Okay, so. what about, you want to tell that one before we get out of here, Cliff? So the American Nazi Party had this crazy um, resurgence in the '60s, where they're there in the media a lot, mostly because of. Um, George Lincoln Rockwell. He was very no, well known because sure. Mike Wallace would interview uh, right, him. Sure. And George Lincoln Rockwell, who was the head of the American Nazi Party in the '60s, organized a lot of protests against movies. They protested the movie Exodus. So there were all these people with Nazi armbands marching in front of theaters that were showing Exodus. But when they showed the movie, um, came out with the movie Sergeants Three, Sergeants Three, starring yeah. the Rat Pack, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Joy Bishop, Sammy Davis Jr. The American Nazi Party protested that because of the interracial familiarity of Sammy Davis. And so that went on in Chicago for um, a few weeks where if you went and bought a ticket to go see Sergeants 3, there would be Nazis marching around out front. And it should be noted that George Lincoln Rockwell's father was a guy named Doc Rockwell, and he was a comedian in vaudeville. Very famous comedian, contemporary of Groucho Marx, contemporary of Frank Fay. Doc Rockwell was not a racist, but his son became the leader of the American Nazi Party, George Lincoln Rockwell, and he disowned his son um, at that point. But yeah, they staged an organized protest against Sergeants 3. There you go, Gil. Jesus. Wow. All all right, now I have to hear the Maury Amsterdam. (laughs) Okay, and then we'll get out of here. Well, I learned that Maury Amsterdam was involved in a lot of uh, um, lawsuits. With litigious. Yeah. Well, he always claimed that he had written that song for the Andrews sisters, Rum and Coca-Cola. Right? Sure. You, you probably heard that, that he had sure, written sure. that song. And his name does appear on he the He did write songs. He wrote the Dick Van Dyke theme. Did he write the theme or did he write the lyrics that nobody used? Oh, that's interesting. Oh, That's okay. interesting. Yes, the theme may have I, been written by a musician. I stand corrected. I'm pretty corrected. sure, because he did that Earl with Hagen Rum and Coca-Cola. He went to a Trinidad on some sort of war tour in the forties and he heard rum and Coca-Cola being played by a local, um, Calypso musician. And he basically stole it. He stole rum and Coca-Cola, added a few new lines and then rum and Coca-Cola became a huge hit in the States and all over the world. And people, and, and it got back to this Calypso musician. He said, that's my song. And so he sued Maury Amsterdam and won, but Maury Amsterdam's legal defense when he was defending himself and saying that they should throw this out of court, this plagiarism suit, he said that the plagiarism suit doesn't bear any water because the lyrics to rum and Coca-Cola are lewd, lascivious, and obscene. Therefore, your um, copyright is not honored in the United States. It was a weird defense, and he lost the case. Then a few years later, uh, Maury Amsterdam and Pat Carroll sued Hanna-Barbera because they had done an audition for the Jetsons and thought that they had been promised the voices of George and Jane Jetson. They lost uh, that suit. And then in the late 70s, what you're referring to, Maury Amsterdam was cast in this pilot for a sitcom that took place in a psychiatric ward. It was supposed to be a takeoff on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but a comedy. (laughs) Hilarious. And Maury Amsterdam was playing this sort of spastic Jerry Lewis type thing. And it was the late 70s, so this was already considered kind of, you don't do that anymore. And so all these sort of public health and mental health advocates came after him and ABC for running the pilot. They thought it was going to go to series or at least Maury Amsterdam did. And he had turned down the job, 
playing Lou Grant's boss on Lou Grant when they were preparing Lou Grant to do this other series where he played a spastic in a mental ward. And so Unbelievable. he was really pissed off. Oh. And really vocal in, in Unbelievable. But, but of course, that show never got made. No. Cliff, we could go on and on and on. I want to recommend the book again. All this great stuff is to be found is in the comedian's uh, Cliff's wonderful Bible of comedy called Essential by John Hodgman and uh, Mel, there's a Mel Brooks blurb on the back. It is a it is a wonderful read. You could this kind of book you can read three or four times, yeah, and then come and come back to it and find, boy, what a what a an undertaking. And we're just so happy you wrote it, and you're so happy you came here, and you came back to us, and you know so much about these restaurants. Will you help Gilbert develop Gilbert yeah. Gottfried's <laughs> pastrami palace? <laughs> I'm sure we can slap some uh, labels on the unsold bottles of Mickey Rooney's lime soda if you want to. <laughs> yeah. Can you even find that? Is that, is, that, that. Uh, is that acquirable? Well, Mickey Rooney, you can find some of these weird things on eBay from time to time. Um, the Andy Griffith, the Good Eaten yeah. um, paper hats that the uh, people that work there wore sometimes show up on eBay. going to be uh, my like new I collection. Say, Mini Pearls Fried Chicken Patches. There's a lot of matches. You can find matchbooks covers from Alan Hill Jr.'s Lobster Barrel. I don't know uh, what your next eBay. book is about, but I hope it's about fun celebrity scandals. And and we only got to half of them. It is, so. and I've been researching Will Rogers, though, quite a bit for my new book. I can't say what the new book's about yet, but I have been researching Will Rogers because I left him out of the previous book because I always thought he was sort of boring. You know, you hear a lot about Will Rogers, but sure. it doesn't sound funny to me you know they say you never met a man he didn't like you never met a man he didn't like and you're like what the fuck does that even mean it's not a joke it's not a punchline but i looked into it i learned what it means it's it's taken out of context he had written a list of jokes in his humor column of fake epitaphs things he wanted on his tombstone and the last one was that maudlin sentence i never met a man i didn't like it was sort of like you know don rickles insulted everybody for an hour yeah. and then at the end he would do that maudlin apology and say we're all the same we're all here for a bit of laughter it would be like this corny wind down will rogers did that he, he would do this this thing of the mock epitaphs and then he would wind down with this corny maudlin thing and say actually i want my tombstone to say i've traveled the world and i never man i didn't like i never met a man i didn't like and after that he said I, I wish I could die right now so somebody could start carving the tombstone, which was a weird thing to say. Things taken um, out of I, context. Geez. How about that? Gilbert, all but I can say is take heart because you would have been on Hitler's list. <laughs> <laughs> had you existed, had you broken through in the 40s. Don't you think so, Cliff? Don't you think he'd have made it? He, he may have. He may have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Any quick plugs before we get you out of here? No, not really. Not really. But if people want to see some images from those restaurants and stuff on oldshowbiz.tumblr.com is a sort of a page that I use to dump all my research materials. Great. As I'm it's researching and discovering things, I just post it for other people to see. And it's all tagged, so you could click on the word um, Cesar Romero, and it'll take you to pages and pages of Cesar Romero-related stuff. And, of course, the classic the showbiz site that has your, still has your great interviews on there. Yes, that's all out there. So, yeah, no no real plugs. You know, you asked me what I've been up to, and I haven't been up to anything other than watching old movies and discovering these stories. I'm like you guys. I'm obsessed with this <laughs> yes, shit, we, you know. why we love talking to you. So come yeah, back, whenever, and we'll do, it, we'll do it again. Sounds great. Sounds great. We'll get to the rest me. of these. Well, this, this is one of those shows I feel like I have to lie down. <laughs> <laughs> Gilbert's mouth has been agape Shit. for the last 45 minutes. Uh, uh. 
yeah. I feel like I, I, I desperately need a shower. Come on, you got Goober pretending he had a vagina. It's unbelievable. <laughs> and Stu Gillum attacking a guy with an axe. What, what, what's on that? We won't go into we won't go into the stories, but what's on that list that we didn't get to? That list that I gave you of uh, of all the scandals is the things that. Oh God, we'll, do, we'll do it another time. Just yeah. name one. I just want to hear the, some of the list there. I don't have it in front of me. Oh yeah. Oh, it's long. I printed out three pages. Oh Jesus Christ! Yeah, we'll get to we'll 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 do them next time for sure. Do you know? I remember one time working with Dom DeLuise where he said he was doing a show for Jerry Lewis and Jerry Lewis would come over to him with his stick and balls tucked between his legs. Really? Really? <laughs> yes. so yes. trend. <laughs> I'm expecting that from you by the end of the evening, Gil. Yes. <laughs> I know you're not derivative. And, and Dom DeLuise said, in, in, in the middle of, you know, a million dollars show and, and everything's going wrong. I, why would he be doing this? <laughs> Add that one to the list, Cliff. Oh, man. Uh, everybody, get, get your hands on the comedians. Go to Cliff's uh, great websites, and uh, we will see you again, buddy. Thank you for doing okay, this. Okay, this is Cliff Noozle Nozzle. <laughs> <laughs> Cliff Noozle Nozzle? Noozle. He was a famous Nazi. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Thanks, guys. We'll talk soon. All right. You can have my coffee, you can have my tea. Just you let my feller be. I'm jealous. Jealous heart is me. I'm just as jealous as I can be. On the rural rat, I'm jealous. Jealous heart is me. I'm just as jealous as I can be. I've got a man and a bulldog too. My man don't bite, but my bulldog do. I'm jealous. Jealous heart is me. Turn the damper down. I'm jealous. Jealous heart is me. I'm just as jealous as I can be. Now I may be old and up in years, but I can climb a hill without changing gears. I'm jealous. Jealous heart is me.
Gilbert Gottfried's amazing Colossal Podcast is produced by Dara Gottfried and Frank Santapadre with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to John Fodiatis, John Murray, and Paul Rayburn. 